You are listening to New Covenant Fellowship. Go out on a limb here. See if anybody in our fellowship, by a show of hands, knows the chorus of that song. Alright. Those of you with your hands raised, if I could get you loud and proud to sing that chorus for me together. That's right. Don't worry, be happy. I, I love that song. Uh, music is infectious. It has the power to get stuck in your head, and uh, sometimes it's annoying when a song gets stuck in your head because, well, perhaps the song is annoying or it's just uh, just frustrating to you for whatever reason. Sometimes. Uh, we listen to a song because it's got a catchy beat, we like it, uh, we, we respect the person who's singing it, they have a great voice, or they're good at rapping, or for whatever reason, but they may not necessarily be saying something that we want stuck in our minds, something that we should be meditating on. Um, this song, on the other hand, is one of those that I don't mind getting stuck in my head, and you'll thank me later when it's stuck in yours. <laughs> I think this is a, a song that... Uh, is good for us to meditate on. I think it, it's a, a healthy reminder for us that we, as God's children, should not <coughs> work. And my purpose in this morning's message, in light of our purpose in this series, The Kingdom, What It Means, our purpose is to answer that question. What does it mean to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven? Well, this morning's text and this morning's message uh, in light of answering that question is, well, it means that we, as citizens of the kingdom, should be a people without worry. Not that we should be carefree or that we should be um, without concern that are legitimate, but that we should be free of the anxieties that weigh down the hearts of men and women. Now, I came across some statistics on the internet, and as you all know, if it's online, it is gospel truth. <laughs> so here goes. 40% of the things that we worry about never actually happen. 30% of the things that we worry about are in the past, and we can do nothing to change them anyway. 12% of the things that we worry about concern the affairs of others, which we actually have no business with. 10% of our worries are with regard to sickness, either real or imagined. And only 8% of the things that we worry about are actually, quote, worth worrying about. If we're not careful, we will worry ourselves to death. Or at least we will worry ourselves sick with ulcers, high blood pressure, High stress levels, lack of sleep, loss of hair, turning hair white. Mm. Now, hopefully, by the end of this morning's message, you will come to the conclusion that even the, quote, 8% that is worth worrying about is not really worth our worry. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we'll pick up in verse 25, where we left off last week. We are continuing to walk through this passage known as the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus, the new Moses, is preparing God's new covenant community for life in the new promised land, the new Jerusalem in the heavenly kingdom. And I will be reading out of the NIV. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? 
See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, the first thing I want to point out is that our text starts with a therefore. And anytime we see in Scripture a therefore, you always want to find out what it's there for. And it's always there to point you back to what was just said. Because what he is about to say is based on the premise of what he just said. So he's drawing in from our text from last week. And in our text last week, Jesus explains that heavenly investments yield greater dividends than earthly investments. That God's people should be generous givers because life does not consist in an abundance of one's possessions. Now there seems to be a natural connection or linkage here. Uh, even last week in our Q&A session, in our, in our discussion after the message last week, um, an individual admitted, in light of being generous givers, in light of life not consisting in an abundance of possessions, an individual admitted, this is a struggle because I, by nature, am a worrier. I think there's a natural connection here with finances and the tendency to worry. So much of our anxiety is linked with finances and needs and desires. It's as if Jesus is saying, Therefore, since life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, let's talk about what you actually need in this world, like food and clothing. And as always, I want to remind you of Jesus' original audience here and hone in on the relevance to that audience. It had especially had particular relevance to those to whom Jesus was originally Speaking, Not long after Jesus uttered these wise words, he prepared a group for mission work to go and spread the gospel of the kingdom. And he gives them power to drive out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead. And he tells them this in Matthew 10 verses 9 through 11. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, stay there, search for some worthy person, stay at their house until you leave. In other words, don't take a bunch of extra stuff to provide for yourself during this journey that I'm sending you on. God will provide your needs. In fact, take less so that you can see how God is going to meet your needs. Now, Jesus, uh, God does this throughout the scriptures. God does this time and time and time again throughout the scriptures. He did this in the original exodus out of Egypt. And putting the Israelites in a scary situation in which it appeared that their needs were not going to be met. And he provided their daily bread in the form of manna. He did this with Abraham. Abraham, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So don't sacrifice them on the altar. March around the city of Jericho, blowing trumpets. If you say so, God. And the walls came a tumbling down. You know what, Gideon? That army of yours, it's just too big. It's too big. Send some folks home. 
No, still too many. Send them home. Make them drink water. See how they drink water out of the lake, and that's going to still too many. Look, 300, that's all you need. That's all you need. Because if you got this huge army, you're going to trust in your own great strength and not recognize that it is I, the Lord, Jehovah, who fights on your behalf. I'm calling you to a scary situation so that you will trust me. God calls his people to trust them. And he puts them in scary situations that I would call faith building exercises in which they have an opportunity to display their faith, exercise trust in him. And on the other side of these experiences, God has always proven to be trustworthy. And his people learn to trust. Experience, after all, in my experience, has been the best teacher. Experience is always a much better teacher. I can tell you something. You can walk out of here and say, but until you experience that for yourself, it's much harder to, to be convinced in your heart that that precept is true. Now, this text this idea, this practice of God to put his people in scary situations in order to build their faith, this is still relevant and applicable to you and I 2,000 years later. I believe God is still teaching his people to trust him, still teaching his people to trust him by putting them in scary situations, faith-building exercises. Because today, you and I are still subject to to worry. You and I are still prone to anxiety, and we still worry about the same things that they worry about. God's provision. <clears throat> Some of us in here have either lost a job or taken a pay cut, and our immediate natural inclination is to worry, what am I going to do now? In all of those situations, did God ever let any one of us down with regard to our provision? <clears throat> Did we not always look back on those situations and go, why was I so worried about that? Again, this text is still relevant to us today. And the precept that is both cross-cultural and timeless, the precept that was as true 2,000 years ago for Jesus' original audience as it is for you and I today is that God provides for his people. Very simply, God provides for his people. True then, true today. <clears throat> and based on that, based on the fact that God provides for those who call him Father, based on the fact that God provides for those who bow the knee to King Jesus, based on that, he, can, he, he issues the command, do not worry. Do not worry. Not just once. Not just twice. But thrice. Three times in the text. Verse 25. Verse 31. Verse 34. Jesus says over and over and over. Do not worry. Do not worry. Why? Well, reason number one. Because he said so. I hated hearing that as a kid. But it's true. It is the decree of the king. And as citizens in the kingdom, it is our duty to follow the decrees of the king. He commands it. Do not worry. He reiterates it. Do not worry. He emphasizes it. Do not worry. And while because he said so is a good enough reason, he's gracious enough to provide us with some reasons. It is reasonable. Let's explore some of the reasons that Jesus gives not to worry. First of all, because God cares for his creation. God cares for his creation. In the beginning, at creation, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, and over all the creeping things that creep in. He created man in his image and woman and gave them dominion over the rest of creation. If he provides 
for the rest of that creation over which his people have dominion, how much more will he provide for those people who are made in his image, who have dominion over the things for which he provides? In other words, he provides for the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet he feeds them. Are they flying around going, I just don't know if there's going to be enough worms for me today? <laughs> he provides for them. And then he explicitly says, are you not much more valuable than they? Are you not much more important than they? Have you ever had any question in your mind about, you know, hierarchy when it comes to, you know, animals and people? Are we equal? No. We're more valuable than they are, according to Jesus. He provides for them who are less valuable. How much more will he provide for you who are more valuable? And the grass. He clothes the grass of the field. And if Jesus was preaching in Central Texas, he'd say, look at the blue bonnets. Is that not a gorgeous garment? Solomon in all of his splendor was not dressed like one of these. Aren't you more important than grass? Yes, you are. And if he clothes them in this way, how much more will he clothe you who are much more valuable or you a little faith? So the first reason that Jesus gives for not worrying is because he provides for that part of creation which is less valuable than we are. How much more will he provide for us who are more valuable than the grass of the field and the birds of the air? Now another reason that Jesus gives for not worrying, because he's gracious, didn't have to give us reasons, but he's gracious and unveils some, some valuable reasons here. Another reason is that you and I cannot add anything of value to our lives by worry. <clears throat> Can't add anything good to your life by worry. In verse 27, Jesus asks, Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? You cannot add time to your life. You cannot add value to your life. It resolves nothing <laughs> to worry. I learned this last week quite well. I was very anxious about coming in here and talking about what we talked about. Josh saw me on, pass by me in the morning, and he was like, dude, what's wrong with you? <laughs> he could tell that something was weighing down my heart. Did it do any good for me to worry? Did it do any good for me to be anxious? Was it my anxiety that generated you know, people's response afterwards coming up to me and saying, you presented that well, I appreciate it, that was not offensive. No, I appreciate that reassurance, by the way, but it wasn't my worry that worked it out. That just added stress to my life. By worrying, we add nothing of value. It doesn't fix things. It is not the answer. It is Pointless. I have a child who whines about everything. Okay? Now, yesterday I, I heard some whining coming from the top of the stairs, so I went out to investigate the situation. And I said, baby, what are you whining about? I dropped my ball down the stairs. Do you want to get your ball back? Yes. Is your whining going to magically make that ball float back up into your hands? No. How are you going to get your ball back? Go get it. Yeah. <laughs> Go get it. Go get it. That whining just makes life less pleasant for those around you. It adds no value. It resolves nothing. It is pointless. Now, for you and I, worrying is the same kind of thing. Worrying about a situation doesn't resolve the situation. Worrying about a situation adds no value. It doesn't fix things. It's not the solution. In fact, it probably makes us less pleasant to be around. If we're stressed out, if we're agitated, if we're irritable, if we're aloof, 
much like the whining of a child, that's an irritant to those around him or her. Much like that makes the whiner less pleasant to be around, so also, worry adds nothing of value. And in fact, it has the ability to make us less pleasant to be around. Now, another point that Jesus makes is that worry is for outsiders. Let them do that. Let those outside of the kingdom go ahead and do that. You? Not so much. That's not for you. That's not for you and me as citizens in the kingdom. He says in verse 32, for the pagans run after all of these. Now, your translation may say Gentile. Uh, the, the Greek word there carries the idea of a foreigner, an outsider. And so Jesus, again, speaking to an original audience of Jews, would see those outside of the covenant community, those who were not Israelites, <coughs> Jews by birth, biologically, if they had not been brought in through uh, being proselytized, then they would be outsiders. They would be outside of the covenant community. The point that Jesus is making is that those outside of covenant with God. They worry and they have reason to. They don't have a relationship with Jesus and know the promises of God. They don't have the rich heritage from which they can draw and see that time and time and time and time again God provides for his people and he has proven himself to be trustworthy. They don't have that rich heritage. They don't have that relationship. They don't have those promises. We do. As those who have been grafted into the olive tree of Israel, as those who have come into covenant with God, as those who have the promises of Jesus, we draw from a rich heritage in which we see that we have a faithful God who has proven himself to be trustworthy. And he follows that up in verse 32 with, Your heavenly Father knows what you need. He knows what you need. That's comforting. That's comforting. He is our Father. And He knows what we need. Even an earthly parent who loves his or her children knows what they need and do their best to provide for those needs. How much more our Heavenly Father? In fact, this is an echo of what Jesus said earlier in this chapter in the mat with regard to the matter of prayer. In verse 8, he says, don't keep babbling on like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. So once again, we have this distinction made between the pagans or the Gentiles or the outsiders, the foreigners. Those outside of covenant with God, they keep babbling. They think that they'll be heard for their many words. Not you. You don't need to keep going on and on. God knows what you need, and he knows what you need before you utter the words. He knows, and that is comforting. And again, notice that the text says he knows what you need. Not what you want, not that for which you lust, not what you covet, not what you desire, what you Need. These are not promises that you'll get into med school. These are not promises that you're going to get the girl of your dreams. These are not promises that you're going to get that dream job or become a pro athlete. These are promises that God will provide for your needs. Because the precept that is timeless and true, that is cross-cultural, as true for you and I today as it was then, is that God provides for the needs his people. And out of that precept, he issues the command, do not worry. Another good reason Jesus gives for not worrying is that worry displays a lack of faith. He says in verse 30, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and is tomorrow thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you, of little faith? Jesus connects worry to a lack of faith. Worry is a display of a lack of faith. I'm going to ask an uncomfortable question. 
a lack of faith sin? Well, is, I'm going to answer that question with a question. Is anything that God commands us to do and then we do not do it, is it sin? Thrice. <laughs> Romans 14, 23 says, Anything that does not come from faith is sin. All right, let's be real. The context there. First century... You've got an overlap of the covenants. You've got a people of God, Old Covenant Israel, who had been under the law of Moses for 1,500 years, and they had strict dietary laws. Do eat this, don't eat this, do eat this. Whoa, stay away from that. Then you've got in the first century the inauguration of the new covenant with the coming of Jesus and the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. And you've got all of this discussion. Okay, so new covenant time. Does that mean the old is gone? Well, you've got things like, hey, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands, teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom, talking to Jews, until the covenant ends until this current administration, this current heavens and earth passes away, got the law, got to follow it. You see these Pharisees? They sit in Moses' seat. Do what they say, not as they do. Do what the law commands. You Jews. And you got Paul preaching to Gentiles, coming into these, uh, establishing these churches. They've never been under these dietary restrictions. You've got these Jews who are saying, whoa, you guys need to be doing what we're doing. And Paul's addressing these issues. What can we eat? What should we not eat? What is permissible? What is out of bounds? That was a discussion in the first century. So with regard to food, Paul says, hey, if you've got faith that it's okay for you to eat that pork tenderloin, go for it. If you do not have faith, if there is doubt in your heart, if in your heart you go, this may be a transgression of God's law, if there's any bit of that, if there's doubt, if there's not faith, sin. Don't do it. Anything that is not of faith is sin. So now that we got the context out of the way, let's go on to say that I believe that this precept holds true and extends beyond the context of dietary restrictions. Anything that is not of faith is sin. Unbelief is sin. Worry is a display of a lack of faith, of unbelief. Pleasing to God. Time and time and time again throughout the scriptures, we see that God commends faith. He commends faith. Recall those spies who explored the promised land and they came back with an ill report. They're really big. We're really small. I don't think he can do it. We're worried. They were condemned for their lack of faith in the God who just did all kinds of really neat stuff in Egypt. But on the other hand, Caleb and Joshua believed our God mighty to save. Our God is stronger, higher than any other. He can do it. We can do it. He's on our side. Commended for their faith. Lack of faith condemned because anything that is not of faith is sin. Faith pleases God. In James chapter 2, even Rahab the prostitute was commended for her faith because she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Abraham commended for his faith, for <clears throat> offering his son Isaac on the altar. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Faith pleases God. Hebrews chapter 11 goes on and on and on about faith. Faith is being certain of what we hope for, sure of what we do not see. It's what the ancients were commended for. It goes on and lists all these ancients and the things that they did as an expression 
of faith in these faith-building exercises. When they were put in scary situations, and God brought them through, and on the other side, God was proven trustworthy time and time again. And in Hebrews 11, verse 6, the author writes, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You catch that? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So, if faith pleases God, if without faith it is impossible to please God, and if worrying is a display of a lack of faith, we should not worry. We should not worry. Because it is a display of a lack of faith. And a lack of faith is sin. And a lack of faith is unbelief. It is displeasing to God. Let's aim to please our King. By expressing our faith. By displaying our trust. It pleases God. I've experienced this with my own children. They're at the age now where they've got minds of their own and they're doing a lot of thinking. So every Friday we've, uh, we've got this ritual where if they, if Robert, I know, <laughs> if they were good throughout the week, then they get to, we get to go to the Dollar Tree and they get to pick out a toy from the Dollar Tree. So one Friday evening, we had an errand to run first, and it was getting dark. Dark means stores are closed, right? So I had an errand to run. I had to run by the Davises first before going there. And we passed right by the Dollar Tree on our way to the Davises, and my daughter Annika was freaking out. <laughs> Daddy, Annie, let's just go there first. I don't want it to be closed. Baby, don't worry. It won't be closed. No, no, no. No, please, please, can you just go through the... To the Dollar Tree first, I, I just don't want it to be closed. Baby, trust me. Trust me. Believe me. I'm your father. Trust me. It will not be closed. It will be open. But Daddy, Daddy, I just, I just don't believe you, she said through tears. And that was a crusher. That hurt. That hurt when she said that. I mean, I've never been intentionally dishonest with my children. I've done everything in my power to shoot straight with them. Even with regard to Easter and Christmas, I shoot straight with them. I'm open and honest with them. I've done nothing, as far as I can recall, but things that would earn their trust. They, they have every reason to trust me. And so when a child of mine says, Daddy, I don't believe you. Daddy, I don't trust you. That hurts. Now, of course, we made our way to the Dollar Tree, and it was open. And I think that through that experience, Annika learned, in this faith-building exercise, she learned to trust me. Because it's a scary situation for a six-year-old. A little bit different from a scary situation for Gideon and Abraham and you and me. But she learned through that experience, as experience is the best teacher. She learned to trust her father. Because there have been opportunities since then for her to say, Daddy, Daddy, I just don't believe you. And the moment she starts to go in that direction, I see her go, I remember Daddy has proven himself trustworthy. And the words that come out of her mouth are, Daddy, I just, I just, I trust you. I believe you. She learned. And that is pleasing to me as a father to hear from my children, I believe you, I trust you. How much more? How much more? I mean, here's the deal. I can lie. I can. I can break promises. I have the ability to lead people astray. I have the ability to lack follow-through. I have the possibility to let people down. My track record isn't flawless in life. I have the ability, but it still hurts to have my child say, I don't trust you. I don't believe you. Well, how about the God for whom it is impossible to tell a lie? How about the God with a perfect track record? The God who is the very embodiment of truth. How much more do you think it hurts him for us to say, I don't trust you? And worry is our subtle way of telling him.
without faith, it is impossible to please God. Let's aim to please God by displaying our faith, by being a people without worry. For that is what we are called to as citizens in the kingdom. Now, again, a major theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount is that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And if in my heart I believe the words of Jesus and I trust the words of Jesus, that God will provide, that he will sovereignly meet my needs, I can rest easy. But if in my heart I doubt, if in my heart I lack faith, I'm more likely to be worried and anxious. Now Jesus closes this section by encouraging his people to focus on the kingdom, on heavenly matters, not earthly matters. In verse 33 he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things that you worry about will be added to you as well. Focus. Focus needs to be with a view to eternity, not the here and now. On the things of God, such as his kingdom and his righteousness, not on material wealth and selfish pursuits. Recall the words that we looked at last week that Paul wrote to Timothy. We only looked at a portion. Let's back up a little bit Get a little broader context. In 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 6, Paul writes to Timothy, Godliness with contentment. Contentment is the key here. Contentment is the issue here. Because the poor are always thinking, if I only had more, I wouldn't have all these worries. And the middle class are thinking, if I only had more, I wouldn't have all these worries. And the rich are thinking, if I only had more, I wouldn't have all these worries. Everybody is always thinking, if I only had more. The real issue is contentment. Contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, such as he provides for the birds of the air and the grass of the fields, and how much more will he provide for you and me? If we have our needs met, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful <laughs> desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then he caps it off with the ever famous for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. God's people should be focused on his kingdom, his righteousness, he will provide for our needs. Now, the context of our passage is God's provision for needs, as I've pointed out and reiterated. Now, it may be tempting for you and I to walk away from this wondering, does that mean, does that mean I, does that mean I shouldn't work? Because after all, in the text, he says, look, the birds of the air, they don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and God feeds them. So does that mean that I should quit my job and let God feed me the same way, and that food will magically appear on the plate, and my bills will magically get paid? No. No. That doesn't square with the rest of Scripture, and we always want to compare Scripture with Scripture. 2 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 10, Paul writes, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy. They are busy bodies. Mm -hmm. such, people are such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. <clears throat> so much for welfare and Obama phones. <laughs> Be responsible. Dang. Be responsible. Make provision so far as it depends on you. Oh, he went there. He got political. Amen. Well, political, by definition, has to do with government and the state it governs. The kingdom of God, by definition, is the government of God. The community or territory over which Christ reigns as king. We've been political for three months. This is politics. This is God's reign. And God's people are to be, in the kingdom, responsible. 
do what we are supposed to do, do what we can do, control what we can control, and that which we cannot control, we put in God's hands, and we trust Him, and we don't weigh down our hearts with the anxieties that are unnecessary. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. All these things will be given to you as well. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worry of its own. By adding unnecessary anxiety to your life, Weighing yourself down with troubles that don't exist, don't need to exist. <clears throat> now, again, we've stressed that this passage is about God's provision for needs. Now, does that mean that, okay, we shouldn't worry about food, we shouldn't worry about clothing, we shouldn't worry about drink, but anything else, that's open game. We can worry about anything else as long as it's not needs, as long as it's not food. And clothing, shelter, we're get, we can worry about it. It's okay. You know, we can worry about being popular at school. You know, we can worry about you know making the grade. We can worry about getting into college. We can you know worry about anything. No, I don't think so. Because biblically, biblically, we see that the context goes beyond our needs. Philippians four six, Paul writes, "Do not be anxious about." Anything. But in the Greek, what that actually means is do not be anxious about anything. <laughs> and you've got to consider the source. Um, modern scholars generally agree that Paul was writing from a luxurious palace where he was sitting on fat stacks of cash. Um, <laughs> he was eating grapes out of the hands of beautiful women. Um, <laughs> no. Easy for you to say, Paul, do not worry. Right. Easy for you to say, do not worry about anything. My marriage is crumbling. Tell me do not worry about anything when your marriage is crumbling. You're doing fine. You tell me not to worry. My children are going astray from the truth. Your children just ask, Daddy, can I get baptized? You tell me not to worry when you got my situation. Tell me not to worry about anything. I just lost my job. You just got a promotion. Easy for you to say, don't worry about anything. Well, yeah, let's consider the source. Paul was writing this from prison. Why was he in prison? Preaching the gospel. So yeah, consider the source. Do not worry about anything, says the man in prison. Preaching the gospel. Do not be anxious about anything. Well, since this applies to you and I today, since you and I are still prone to worry, to be anxious, what is the remedy? What is the remedy? Well, piety, practicality, and prayer. What do I mean by piety? Well, that word has a negative connotation oftentimes because people confuse piety with false piety. It just simply means righteousness. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Throughout the scriptures, we have exhortations to walk in righteousness. And when it comes to worry, so much of our worries can be avoided by avoiding the sin that brings them about. In other words, if you lie, you're going to be worried about other people finding out about it. If you cheated on your taxes, you're going to be worried about the IRS finding out about it. If you are committing adultery, you will be worried about your spouse finding out about it. If you steal, you will be anxious about anybody finding out about it. If you murder, you will be anxious or worried about somebody finding the body, unless you did a really good job of hiding it. But even then, there's that little bit of anxiety. What if? Not that I've experienced that. Gossip. <laughs> slander. You gossip about somebody. You slander somebody behind their back. Are you not worried? What if somebody heard me say that and they go tell them? So many of the things that we worry about generated by sin, by doing wrong. We can avoid a lot of anxiety by walking in righteousness, doing what is right. So the first remedy is piety. Second remedy is practicality. So many things we worry about because we're not necessarily being practical about them. Uh, we should be wise 
There's a lot of wisdom in the scriptures throughout the Proverbs, and we have a lot of resources today. I believe that we should prioritize. A teacher that I respect um, continually preaches this pattern to his congregation, and I, I think there's some wisdom there. He says, take a look at your income, determine what you need to live on, work out a budget, and stick to it. Based on what you need to live on, then determine percentages of the leftover to give and save. And then in this order, give, save, spend. And do your best to stick to the budget. Practicality, good stewardship, good financial planning. Now, I'm not really the guy who needs to be preaching this. Okay? We are a body in the body of Christ the hand doesn't do what the eyes do. The ear doesn't do what the knees do. We are all members of one body, and we all have different gifts and abilities, and we all come together to be effective for work in the kingdom. And there are some men in our church who have degrees in business and accounting and finances. There are men in our church, in this body of believers, in this local assembly, who have jobs that are centered around financial planning, practical wisdom with regard to finances, and I am issuing a public challenge to these men to rise up and lead us. In our next small group, why don't we have a, a, a course on practical living with regard to finances? Teach us to be wise with our money. Teach us how we can budget better. Teach us. Those of you who are qualified and equipped in this area, that the rest of us may gain insight from you. Practicality. Finally, prayer. Now, this is the most important of them. Prayer. I stopped short in Philippians 4, 6. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. And he continues and says, but in everything, by prayer and petition... Present your requests before God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You think about it. There is a transcendent peace, this otherworldly peace, this out-of-this-world peace that comes from going, Here, God, you handle this. Now, you know, when, when we've got a burden, when we've got something we need to do or something that's weighing us down, we can, we can hand those things over to people. And sometimes uh, we're, that may stress us out even more because we're not sure if they're going to handle it the right way or whatever. Well, what about Jesus? You think he can handle it if we hand it off to him? When you hand something over to a trustworthy and reliable person, there is a, ah, I know it's going to get done. I know it's going to get done right. I can I can live stress-free, worry-free, anxiety-free. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, don't worry about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. In everything, by prayer and petition, present your requests before God. Put it in his hands. He's trustworthy and reliable. He'll handle it better than you and I can handle it. No need to worry once we've handed it over to him. Once it's in his hands. Once we say, Jesus, take the wheel for you and I to become a backseat driver. Hmm. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because for those of us who are good drivers, we don't really appreciate a backseat driver. <laughs> Thank you very much. Jesus is a really good driver. He's an excellent driver. Not like Rain Man, but he really is an excellent, excellent driver. And he can be trusted with the wheel. Once we put it in his hands, we don't need to be grabbing back and saying, no, 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 Jesus, not that way. No, 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 Jesus, not that way. I, I, never mind, Jesus, give me the wheel. No need for all of that. He can be trusted. Put it in his hands. Best, by far, best remedy for anxiety. Best remedy for the worry that we are commanded not to do. Thrice. In closing, I'd like to share with you something that illustrates this idea really well. I didn't write this, and I like to give credit where credit is due, but the author is unknown. 
It is entitled, It Depends Whose Hands It's In. A basketball in my hand is worth about $19. A basketball in Michael Jordan's hands is worth about $33 million. Depends on whose hands it's in. A baseball in my hands is worth about $6. A baseball in Mark McGuire's hands is worth about $19 million. It depends on whose hands it's in. A tennis racket is useless in my hands. A tennis racket in Pete Sampras' hands is a Wimbledon championship. It depends whose hands it's in. A rod in my hands will keep away a wild animal. A rod in Moses' hands will part the mighty sea. It depends whose hands it's in. A slingshot in my hands is a kid's toy. A slingshot in David's hand is a mighty weapon. It depends whose hands it's in. Two fish and five loaves in my hands is a couple of fish sandwiches. Two fish and five loaves in God's hands will feed thousands. Depends on whose hands it's in. Nails in my hands might produce a birdhouse. Nails in Jesus Christ's hands will produce salvation for the entire world. It depends whose hands it's in. As you can see, it depends whose hands it's in. So if you put your concerns, your worries, your fears, your hopes, your dreams, your families, and your relationships in God's hands, it depends on whose hands it's in. Let's cast all our anxieties on Him because He cares for us. Let's take our worries and put them in His hands, in the hands of the God who provides for his people, because as citizens in the kingdom, we are not to be a people of worry. God, this is 